So I have nothing official to disclose, but I will apologize if I go over. But I think they scheduled me right before a break intentionally so I don't get anybody mad. So we have several learning objectives for the morning, and that would be to differentiate between the basic concept of neuropathic and nociceptive pain. Just because someone has chronic pain doesn't mean it's always neuropathic. right? But we also want to talk about the process of pain transmission, how pain gets from your fingertips to your brain. Because if we understand what the pathway is functioning at, that gives us a better understanding of what to do to treat that patient. And then our last goal, depending on how much time we have at the end, we're going to look at some of the different pharmacologic therapies we have for pain and what parts of the pathway they might have an effect on. But we're just going to highlight them because you have plenty of an opportunity to really get all the details from some of the other speakers here at Pain Week. Okay. So we're just going to superficially touch upon them. We start our voyage this morning by talking about the concept of good pain versus bad pain. And pain can be good, isn't it? If I touch something that's hot, don't I want to know that that surface is hot so I can pull my finger away fast enough so I can prevent a potential first-degree burn from becoming a third-degree burn? Of course. If I am going to have a potentially fatal cardiac event, don't I want to have chest pain to give me forewarning so that I have enough time to like intercede and prevent mortality? You betcha, bring on that pain. The problem is what happens is if several weeks after I burnt my finger, my finger's still hurting. Well, that's where pain started out with all the best intentions, but now that it's still there, it's, we just assume it not be there, all right? I do have to remind everybody with all the beeping to please silence your cell phones because I tend to pick on people with really bad ringtones. <laughs> so let me give you an example here that's extremely important. And this sort of almost summarizes many of the patients that I've seen over the years. If I take a spear and stick it in your foot, what's the presenting diagnosis? And by the way, when Dr. Argoff asks you a question at pain week, it's always a trick question, so the answer is not gonna be the obvious one. When I ask you a question, it's gonna be the obvious one. So if I take a spear and stick it in your foot, what's the symptom? Foot pain. Okay, so is it gonna be harder to treat that foot pain while the spear is still there because your body is gonna be saying foot pain, foot pain, foot pain? So if you try and treat that, no matter what you do, it's gonna hurt. But on the other hand, if you take a step backwards and you find the spear and take it out, well now you can change the presenting diagnosis, change what you do, and would you expect a better outcome? So what I'm getting to here is one of the first secrets there is to dealing with chronic pain is, especially when people have seen other providers, one of the most important things you can do is take a step backwards, reevaluate the patient from a different perspective, because you know what? We are all very well-trained, experienced clinicians, physicians, aren't we? But we all look at the patient from a different perspective. And don't assume that the provider who saw the patient before you did all the work up to get to something, because I will tell you, having done records review thousands of times, that you can see a patient that's had back pain, and you can get a stack of records this thick, and grossly missing from the record is any evidence that someone actually ever examined the patient's back. That's scary. So we, start, we continue our voyage talking about the concept of nociceptive pain. What is nociceptive pain? <laughs> Well, this concept of nociceptive pain basically is it's giving you information from your outside environment, right? This is linked to normal tissue function. This is the way the body was designed to work. Everybody got that? 
Remember the example I gave you when touching something that was hot? What did I do? I pulled my hand away, so I changed my behavior. Well, that's adaptive. Jim Giordano, Dr. Giordano, who used to be faculty of pain week, one of the most brilliant people I ever met, used to call nociceptive pain non-maldinic, basically being, meaning it's not bad. This is the way we were designed to function. It's purposeful pain, giving you information from your outside environment. It's to prevent injury and technically illness, too. But on the other hand, a good example of a bad pain was this concept of what we see as neuropathic pain. Neuropathic pain implies that there's some sort of error in processing or some kind of error in functioning with respect to the central and peripheral nervous systems. Is that right? There's a cliffhanger there, too, and we'll get to that in a second. So this is usually associated with some sort of illness, disease, or injury. And therefore, according to Dr. Giordano, using his terminology, it's maldinic, meaning it's bad. When I first saw this, I used to joke around and say this was my favorite centerfold ever because this was the, the centerfold of the Nature Review from 2007, and it basically was this entire lecture in a snapshot because everything you needed to know about pain mechanisms was here, and it was very complicated. I will tell you I have a new favorite centerfold now, and don't worry, it's still not what you think it is. So one of the things I think it's important to point out here is if you start looking at this chart, you very quickly realize that this whole process of pain is very complicated. And whether you believe in intelligent design or evolution, it's overly redundant because the body says no matter what happens, I'm going to get that signal through. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So this is where I really apply something that I like to call the asteroid theory. Uh, we're not advancing here. Let's try that again. Okay, gentlemen, can you hit the slide to advance for me? There we go. So um, the asteroid theory, why, is, why do we call this the asteroid theory? Well, if you think about this, if we have an asteroid barreling towards Earth and it's going to potentially cause our ultimate destruction, do we have the current technology to destroy that asteroid? And the answer is no. Our current technology says we might be able to get it to veer off course a little bit. We might be able to break off a small chunk so when it hits, the damage is not severe, as severe as it would be. But we can influence the behavior of that asteroid, but we are by far going to be able to control it. Well, guess what? You hear people talking about treating pain and managing pain all the time, and they often talk about it like we can modulate pain better than the body can modulate itself. Well, guess what? We can't. So we start off with the premise that we are merely influencing pain. We are not controlling pain. Everybody got that? So for those of you, it's nice to see a few people that know me here. So for those of you who know me, they know that I'm a car guy. And I like to use car and road analogies. And what I love even funnier is when you get to the car dealer, and the car dealer is using medical analogies to explain. Oh, what, what's wrong with the mic? Oh, sorry. <laughs> Technical difficulties. I'll just put it in my pocket. So hopefully we'll keep that better. So I like to use car and road analogies because for me that's something that's easy to explain. So I view the entire process of pain basically analogous to a road map. So in a road map, you know, if you tell me I have to go from point A to point B, so we bless you, we start at one place and we have a final destination. Well, there are certain landmarks and certain pathways we have to take to get there. And there, there are certain checkpoints along the way that we have to stop at. Well, when we use our road analogy, 
pain is a physiologic process. It involves multiple areas of the nervous system, kind of like our checkpoints and our pathways to get there. It's bidirectional, meaning it has signals that go both ways, just like our highways. It involves a normal as well as a pathological process. What's unique about pain is there is an, effect, an affective or a cognitive component. This is what separates the patient, right, um, who has a learned experience where patient's pain might be perceived as greater by one person than another. It's dynamic because it occurs in real time. And lastly, it has this concept called neuroplasticity, meaning the body adapts to change based upon the demands placed upon it at the time. So here's my example and the way I like to explain neuroplasticity. If you wanted to develop your cardiovascular system, what do you do? Exercise, work out, right? So we do aerobic exercise, we build our cardiovascular system. What happens if you said, you know what, I've had enough and you stop? How long does it take for your body to go back to normal? Does it like revert automatically just overnight? No, it takes time for you to go back to where you before. Kind of like the television commercial where you do one sit-up, you're good to go. So think about this for a second. Let's say the patient has chronic pain, right? And you put them on a medication. And they come back in a couple of days later or a couple of weeks later and you ask them how they're doing. And they say, no better. Well, you have to realize that sometimes the changes take longer to set in. So it's not just asking the patient about their perception. You have to make sure you get down to looking into the history. Did they function more? Did, were there examination findings that you had that you see different than they were before? Because if you don't call these things to the patient's attention, they're never going to be identified, right? So, you know, we like to, just to joke around, I coined the phrase cardioplasticity. And it's a very similar concept. And it was kind of neat because I saw that term show up on a Medscape article and figuring that guy went to pain week. So the concept of neuroplasticity is important because even though we talk about these changes that occur to the central nervous system causing like peripheral and central sensitization, whoever talks about them going back. So I gave the example in the neck and upper extremity patient, uh, the neck and upper extremity session yesterday, where we had a patient who we took his two-year history of neck, upper extremity pain and headaches and made him go away in two weeks. But then you have the patient who came back and he says he's no better, but then he's listing all the stuff he did as far as that he hasn't done in years and all the clinical examination findings are gone. So then I have to sit there and explain the concept of neuroplasticity to the patient so that they understand and then you become the patient's cheerleader for the next couple of weeks because all we're giving them is positive affirmation and motivation as we're winning them off all his meds. So that concept is extremely important and we have to be able to relate that to the patient. So when we look at pain itself, pain itself has a couple of different types. We start the first one, of course, with nociceptive pain, but we've sort of addressed that. Nociceptive pain is basically we get information from our outside environment, something that's hot, cold, sharp, dull. The body converts that to an electrical impulse at the periphery. That signal travels along the peripheral nerve. It synapses at the first order synapse at the spine, ascends to the spinal cord, and arrives to the brain. Boy, I said that pretty fast. Is that a normal or a pathological process? Normal. We all agree, right? Okay, so that's the way the body's supposed to work. On the other hand, on the inflammatory side of the equation, we've added in some sort of maybe injury or some sort of inflammatory or immune process, which is also affecting everything at that same peripheral nociceptor, and then that signal's following that same pathway all the way back to the brain. Is that a normal or a pathological process? It's a trick question, because it's a normal process that involves the presence, potentially, of a pathology, right? 
Neuropathic pain, on the other hand, assumes that something in the periphery or the central nervous system, peripheral central nervous system, is not processing properly or not functioning properly, so that it's creating an error which is then causing neuropathic pain. Does that make sense? Well, there's a subcategory here, and I wish that people would address it. Let's think about the patient with the spear in the foot. If the spear is in the foot six months later, the, what's the body doing? It's saying spear and foot, spear and foot, spear and foot. And the, ner the nervous system is actually sort of imprinting that pain, making changes to those neural pathways because it's constantly firing. But is that something that's broken? No, that's the body doing exactly what it's supposed to do. We just don't like the outcome. So when we hit the concept of neuropathic pain, we really should have a subcategory that says category A, classic neuropathic pain, it's consistent with what we look at as an error in processing with the central and peripheral pathways. Category B, the body's doing exactly what it's supposed to do, we just are not happy with it because there's still some other thing that we can treat. And I think those are the patients that are even more treatable. It's been almost 15 years now that was where the discussion ended until Wolf came up with this fourth category that he referred to as functional pain. So what is that? Well, functional pain became this sort of category that everybody put the sort of the discussion points or all the pain classifications that didn't fit the other criteria. So this is where you put pain associated with irritable bowel. This is where you put non-cardiac chest pain. This is where you put certain forms of fibromyalgia, and there's a really good cliffhanger here. Okay, there's a problem here, and I think as we go forward in this world of pain, this last category has to change. Because as we learn more about these conditions and the way pain is processed, I think we can either come up with all new categories or better define this category and see what happens. One of my favorite examples to give is when I did this preceptor program, program at Evans Army Community Hospital, we had a soldier that had neck and upper extremity pain for four or five weeks. It was a sudden onset, but he was evaluated in the ER half a dozen times for chest pain. So they did everything in the world to rule out his chest pain, couldn't find a thing. We give him a quick exam and find out he's got a rib arthropathy. We injected and manipulated the rib, made his non-cardiac chest pain go away. So what we did is we reclassified his functional non-cardiac chest pain into an inflammatory pathology and fixed it. But that says how the categories are soft, and I hope that will truly make some changes when it comes to the way that we map things out. I borrowed this slide from Dr. Michael Clark, one of the other illustrious speakers here at Pain Week. And the reason why I liked it is because it broke apart the classic differences between neuropathic and nociceptive pain really nicely. On the nociceptive side of the equation, you have the typical mechanical sprain strain, musculoskeletal type pathologies, right? On the neuropathic side, you have the classic neuropathic pain conditions, uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, trigeminal neuralgia, post-traumatic neuralgia. Then in the middle, we have these things called mixed pain, and they're mixed because they can have components of both neuropathic and nociceptive pain, and they can also have pain that's unique or components unique to its own category. So I love this slide. Okay, I also view it as shameless self-promotion because we do a two-hour masterclass in differential diagnosis of back pain on Friday. Notice what's in all three categories? Back pain. So the key to really getting an outcome with respect to treating a patient's back pain, I like to say is not throwing darts at a patient and seeing what works. It's what exactly do you think is causing this particular patient's back pain at this time in a highly patient-centered manner? And then we can decide what really needs to be done to treat that patient.
So hopefully, maybe you'll humor me and come to one of my other sessions. So we, we want to talk about now this whole process of pain. So if somebody walks up to you and says, describe the process of pain, you can proudly say in four steps, it's transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. Now, Dr. McPherson and I have a little debate here going. It's not a little debate. It's sort of a little constant battle, but we have fun with it at Pain Week because Dr. McPherson likes to point out that she believes there are five steps to this pathway. So the fifth step that Dr. McPherson cites is called modulation. Now, I personally view modulation as part of the process, but not the landmark. So neither one of us are incorrect. It's just the perspective of how you look at it. So I will tell you that if you ever see a board exam question of some sort that says, name the steps of the process of pain, the question may or may not include modulation. You have to read the question because it might be relevant. You might have to include it. And then I've also seen some um, variations of the theme where they'll call conduction peripheral transmission. So just food for thought. So what exactly happens in this? And to me, that's the key, because it's not a, a matter of memorizing transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. It's a matter of knowing what happens in this process so we never forget it. So here's how I like to think about it. A transducer is anything that converts one form of electrical energy into another. Okay? So you remember those good old-fashioned television screens that basically those old computer monitors and televisions, those big, heavy cathode ray tubes? What happens is... You take electricity, throw it through this cathode ray tube, which throws a beam of electrons against a glass screen coated with phosphors. The phosphors absorb the light and then give off well, energy and then give off light so you can see it. So basically that television screen or that computer monitor converted electrical energy into light energy and is therefore called a transducer. Extra credit points to anybody who can tell me the reverse of that that's extremely important to us. This is like, whose line is it anyway? You get a million points for the answer to the question, but the points don't matter. Your eyes, because your eyes are converting light energy into an electrical impulse that the brain can process. So your eyes are the exact in the, you know, uh, um, reverse of the television, and they're transducers. So a transducer is anything that converts one form of energy into another, meaning I feel something at my skin on my fingers that's hot, cold, sharp, dull. Well, in order for the body to do something with that, I convert it to an electrical impulse right there at the skin. That's step one, transduction. Okay, so now the signal's sitting at my fingertip, but I gotta get the signal over to the spine. Well, that's the first step of the journey, and that's called conduction. So conduction occurs through you know, primary nociceptive fibers, right, A delta and C fibers. So here's how I remember conduction. And this holds true today, it's great. I, took, I had to go to Washington, D.C. for a conference um, not that long ago, and I didn't feel like driving and sitting through traffic, so I hopped on the train, bought my ticket online, got onto the Amtrak train in the morning, and just like clockwork, the conductor still walks down the aisle, looks at your ticket, and then checks you in and puts a little thing up on top of the seat where you're sitting at. So I always remember the first part of my journey being the conductor, because when I, when I started college, I used to have to commute, and there was always a conductor involved if you got on the train first. So I always remembered that. I never forgot it. When I come to places like Pain Week, thanks to Richmond not having that many direct flights to cities like Vegas, I have to go to the airport and transfer planes. So for me, the next step of the process, when we have this peripheral nerve fiber that comes and synapses in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord at that first order synapse, now I have to jump over to the next pathway, which is the ascending spinal pathway. 
So that first order synapse then occurs and we have to change pathways, if you will. So I always remember that I have to transfer flights. And just like in Amtrak, as soon as I got to Washington, D.C., in this case, I transferred to Uber. When I was coming to Vegas, I got to, I think we went through Minneapolis this time. So I had to change planes in Minneapolis. And wouldn't you know it, it's like the opposite end of the different terminal. It's like you have to appreciate tight connections. Then the signal ascends through the spinal cord and goes to the very last step, which is perception. So, bless you. What's important about perception is this is what separates one patient from the next. Because if you look at it, and I'm exaggerating here to say, because there's probably some genetic variation among us, but for the most part, the first three parts of the pathway are about the same. But it's this last stage of the pathway, because there's a cognitive, a behavioral, this limbic side of the equation, this is what sets one patient apart from the next to say, well, you can ask someone, we've all seen these patients, if they get a paper cut, and you say, okay, on a scale from one to 10, 10 being the most severe, the worst it can possibly get near death, one being not so bad, how bad's your pain? And they'll tell you a 15. And we've all seen them, right? I got a better story, actually. We contrast that to the guy who, and we're embellishing here, my favorite example is to use a guy with a two by four sticking out of his abdomen, and he looks down and says, ooh, that's a flesh wound. We'll call it a three. Okay, show of hands, who would rather treat the guy with the flesh wound than the three? All day long. I got another story I'm going to tell you because we're going to go over a few minutes anyway, so what the heck. So I had a guy, a patient, that used to say his pain was a nine out of ten. Okay? And then back in the day, they went and tried the capsaicin patch. So then when he came back after having the patch applied, because he thought on the scale from 1 to 10, the patch was 100. So from now on, he's going to call his pain a 2. And he never went back for the patch. So sometimes you need a little bit of a learned experience in order to kind of bring that back to reality. Um, there's a, a pain doc that I worked with over the years. I kind of I, I like the way he deals with this, too. He has these little rubber faces that like, one of the pharmaceutical companies gave him out one year for pain scales, right? So he got this thing with, like, 10 rubber heads on it, and they all look kind of extremely worse as you get to the end. So he'll have a patient will come in and say, oh, my pain's a 10 out of 10. He'll pick up the rubber head and hold it on the side of their face in front of a mirror and say, does your face look like that? <laughs> and they'll say no. So then he'll pick up the one that he thinks is closest and say, is that about right? And he'll, they'll say yes. He said, good. From now on, your pain's a 4. <laughs> I always love that. Until this day, he still has them in his office. So what happens at this peripheral nociceptor? So at this peripheral nociceptor, two things happen. We get this activation of a receptor that then fires so that it can depolarize and send a signal. So the receptor is activated by direct stimulation. And then we also have the immune inflammatory side of the equation, which is also going to have an effect at the same peripheral nociceptor. And that's what starts the process rolling to get this electrical impulse going, right? So if you look at what's necessary just to kick the ball, you know, get the ball started, kick off the process, it's prostaglandins, leukotriene, substance B, histamine, bradykinin, serotonin, hydroxy acids, reactive oxygen species, inflammatory cytokines. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Remember how we talked about it being over-redundant? So if we start having an effect on one of these, man, the body's sure going to find a workaround. Interesting. So it's a very complicated, complex process. So now we converted that electrical impulse, transduced it in the periphery of the skin. So now we got to get it over to the spinal cord. And the first step was the conductor or conduction. So you're never going to forget the guy with the hat on his head. 
So conduction occurs by two primary nociceptive fibers, A delta and C. Everybody remember that? So here's how I remember A delta and C fibers because I use my car and road analogy thing. So A delta fibers are like the latest, greatest superhighways, the interstates. How many lanes are they? The more they build, the wider they get, right? So you might have six lanes going in either direction, large diameter. What's the speed limit on the interstates? 65, 70 in some places, um, maybe, maybe more? Well, that's rapidly conducting. And if you look at it by comparison, it's 10 to 30 meters per second or 10 to 30 times the length of my arm per second. These fibers are myelinated. What does myelinated mean? Well, myelin are made by Schwann cells, which are a form of a glial cell, which allows for the signal to hop along. So for our discussion purposes, it's like the oil that greases the pathway. Right? They're thermal and mechanical. Well, they carry thermal and mechanical stimulation, but if you think about it, you can drive your car or truck on the interstate. Are you going to ride your bicycle on the interstate? No. So they're very selective of the signals that can travel. They have small receptor fields. Well, you can get on at exit one, and you can get off at exit seven, but can you come and go any place you'd like on an interstate? No. You end up going right by Radiator Springs, right? So on the other side, C fibers are the smaller diameter, slower conducting fibers. Well, I like to view those as the roads in your neighborhood. They're small diameter. What's the street in front of your house? How many lanes is that? Two, maybe, or one. Some people could be on a one-way street. So it, in the very least, it's small diameter, one or two lanes. What's the speed limit in front of your house? 25 miles per hour, or in this case, 0.5 to 2 meters per second. They're cross-sensitized. Well, remember that radiator springs example? You can do anything you want radiator, radiator springs. As the interstate's going by, you have no idea what's going on. But in your neighborhood, what happens on one block affects what happens on the next, doesn't it? Cross-sensitized. Well, they're unmyelinated. That means they don't have myelin, which are made by swan cells, which are a glial cell. So no oil to help things slide along. But they're also polymodal. They take all comers. You can jog, drive your car, ride a bike, scooter. It doesn't matter. Polymodal. And they have broad receptor fields because you can come and go wherever you want, turn on and off at every block. Pretty cool that that analogy works, isn't it? So there is yet a third fiber we have to worry about if you do a cross-section of that peripheral nerve, and that's an A-beta fiber. Why don't we worry about A-beta fibers with respect to pain? Because A-beta fibers are pretty much involved with motor function. Think kinesthesia. So it's um, proprioception, not nociception. But again, there is a cliffhanger here for certain forms of fibromyalgia, so I'm going to make you hold on to that thought. Oh, what happened to our model? There we go. So basically, we have these peripheral nociceptors, these peripheral fibers coming in and synapsing the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. They're A, delta, and C fibers. So they synapse in the dorsal horn, and now those signals have to go up to the spine, uh, up the spine to the brain, and those pathways are going to be the spinal thalamic pathways. But it turns out that the A delta fibers and C fibers actually take different spinal thalamic pathways. So the A delta fibers travel along the neospinal thalamic pathways, and the C fibers travel along the paleospinal thalamic pathways. So my road analogy works here too because paleo is like the old, right? The old-fashioned road system, two lanes either direction, you know, two lanes bilateral, and the neospinothalamic are the fast ones, well, they're the newest, latest, and greatest. 
So that analogy works there too. So now we've got the signals going up to the brain before that final step of perception, right? But here's where the process starts getting a little complicated too because we have some other things going on. Do you know the body has its own pain inhibitory mechanisms? How many times have we heard that? So coming from the midbrain, we have these descending inhibitory tracts coming down saying go or no go, kind of like a toll gate. So I literally picture in my mind a toll gate coming down and saying halt, pain signal, stop. So if you activate the descending inhibitory pathways, what happens to the tendency for that pain signal to get through at that first order synapse where the descending inhibitory pathways are having an effect? You decrease the ability of the signal to get through by activating the inhibitory pathways and they are activated by norepinephrine and serotonin. There are some other things going on that play a role here in, if you will, how this whole pain signal travels. We have these things called excitatory neurotransmitters. What are they? Well, they're like the cheerleaders of the nervous system. They're telling the pain signal to go, 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 get there. So those are substance P, CGRP, aspartate, my fave, glutamate. On the other hand of the equation, we have these inhibitory neurotransmitters called GABA, glycine, somatostatin, and alpha-2 agonists. What are they doing? They're saying, whoa, slow down. So whether or not that signal gets through depends on which way the scale is tipped, right? You tip it towards the excitatory neurotransmitters side, you're going to have a greater likelihood of the signal going through. If you tip it onto the inhibitory side of the equation, you're going to have less of a tendency for the signal to get through. So modulating how the signal works by affecting the balance of these things in this pathway is an important way that we do internally self-modulation with the body, but that we also try and influence by certain medications that we might have an effect with with the patient. So basically, on this concept of neuroplasticity, we've already started talking about a couple of different things that can happen for this entire process. We didn't really talk about the neural structure, but you can change the structure of the peripheral nerve. These peripheral nerves often interact with each other, so you can change the connections within them. We did talk about sort of that you can change the quality of the properties of neurotransmitters. We talked about the concentration of neurotransmitters, excitatory versus inhibitory. We've added in the descending inhibitory pathway coming down or saying go or no go. These are all things that can happen with respect to the concept of neuroplasticity that affect changes and how we process pain. So before we go further, I want to talk about some of the different things that we've heard already here at Pain Week, because I know I've sat through some of these sessions just like you. So I want to talk about the first concept is peripheral sensitization. So here's my summary for peripheral sensitization. Let's see. Ram, can I borrow you? Everyone, Ram. Ram? Is that your name? Okay, Ram, everyone, everyone, Ram. Give me your arm, Ram. Okay, I can tap Ram's arm all day long. He might not like it, but is it really going to bother him? Not really. But if I rub Ram's arm until it's all raw and irritated and inflamed and create the sensitizing soup of inflammatory cytokines and neurotransmitters and then start tapping Ram's arm, what's going to happen? He's going to have an exaggerated pain response because we built up that concentration of excitatory neurotransmitters and inflammatory cytokines and or decreased the threshold for firing so the firing, the net response is a greater, louder signal. Does that make sense? I mean, that's peripheral sensitization in a nutshell. Central sensitization, on the other hand, is a little bit more complicated because there are a lot more things going on, so we have to back up and talk about some other things first. And the two things we see most often associated with central sensitization are hyperalgesia and allodynia. And Dr. Buttress did a really good, um, if you were in his session yesterday afternoon, he did a really good example of explaining this. He even used one of the same slides. 
So we'll start with allodynia. Allodynia basically is a painful response to something that should normally be non-painful or shouldn't even bother you. It should essentially be inert. Think of the patient with gout that has, feels a sheet touching their toe when they're trying to sleep in bed and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. Think of the complex regional pain syndrome patient that feels air hitting the hairs on their forearm and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. Because to most of us that don't have a problem, that sensation is essentially innocuous. We shouldn't even be paying attention to it. Allodynia. On the other hand, hyperalgesia is a lowered threshold to something that shouldn't necessarily be painful. It might have been just annoying, but it shouldn't have been painful. So the best way to visualize that is this slide. Because in a normal situation, when you have the air hitting the hair on your forearm and the sheet touching your big toe, those are innocuous. You normally don't feel them. But then as you increase your stimulation intensity above that, your pain intensity increases. Well, in the case of central sensitization, what appears to happen is you're phase shifting this curve to the left so that now under this scale where you see the red part, where the hair is hitting the, the air is hitting the hair on the forearm or the sheets hitting the gray toe, that's eliciting a painful event where it shouldn't have. And it takes a lower stimulation intensity to give you that pain perception or pain intensity. Make sense? So we have this thing going on in the periphery. We have these peripheral nociceptors that are stimulated by some sort of direct receptor, i.e. something hot, cold, sharp, and dull. And there are certain little receptors that are chemoreceptors, thermoreceptors, dedicated to certain kinds of information. And then you have the immune system going on at this level too. So it's part of the inflammatory mechanism, all having an effect at this peripheral nociceptor. But you see what else is here too? What's the MOR? a mu opioid receptor. Do we ever talk about opioid receptors in the periphery? Not too often, do we? But there was a great study that came out during World War II where they talked about using injectable uh, morphine on the battlefield as a local anesthetic because it was all they had in some cases. Or maybe that was World War I, I'm not sure. So I like to view that the mu opioid, my belief is that the mu opioid receptor at this peripheral nociceptor is probably more for endogenous opioids. So if I get my arm bitten off by a tiger or a shark, I want to be able to run or swim away and not think about the pain. But who knows, it might have an effect and we at least have to consider that there is a peripheral mu opioid receptor that no one ever talks about. So what ultimately happens basically at this peripheral nociceptor is it's all about generating an action potential. So something happens, this is all influenced, and then we basically take this action potential and generate it, and now that goes along the peripheral nerve. So now that we're getting to the spine, I want to talk about some of the things that cause central sensitization. And the first thing we want to talk about is activation. So what is activation? Well, I like to view activation as the glass half full. So my glass isn't kind of half full. It's sort of like three quarters right now. But I can walk across this floor and not spill a drop of water. So on the other hand, if I fill the water up to the very brim, what's the likelihood I'm going to be able to take a step and not spill a drop? Pretty slim, especially with my hand because it shakes. So basically what happens, this whole concept of wind-up is we're building up something in the nervous system so that it's the slightest little jar is going to make it easier to overflow. We're not talking water molecules, but maybe we're talking like an excitatory neurotransmitter such as glutamate. So, and we talked about the fact that you can have, remember that ratio of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters, that was sort of the way the scale tips. So what happens here is glutamate, 
And this is that first order synapse in the spine in the dorsal horn. So glutamate binds an NMDA receptor. That allows for the influx of sodium and calcium, which is how that peripheral action potential jumps from the peripheral nerve to the spinal nerve or the spinal pathways. Substance P is another glutamic type receptor that can, uh, substance that'll bind the NMDA receptor. Notice what you have here too at that same receptor, another mu opioid receptor. Interesting, isn't it? So there's a mu opioid receptor in the dorsal horn too. And then last but not least, remember we talked about the descending inhibitory pathway that comes down like a toll gate and says go or no go? Well, that's norepinephrine and serotonin based and look where they're having an effect at that same site. So there's a lot going on here, isn't there? So if we change the way that glutamate activity, like the, what happens when you bind that, that glutamic receptor, so glutamate binds the receptor, if you change the way the receptor behaves, maybe it stays open a little bit longer or a little bit lower, you're gonna change that altered ability of that altered function of how that signal travels. You can change the, the ratio between excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters and tip the scale so you can see where that is gonna have an effect. You have the descending inhibitory pathway that comes down saying go or no go. And then now we also have a myopioid receptor at that same first order synapse in the dorsal horn. So for central sensitization, we got a lot of options. And that's not all of them. This is that same dorsal horn peripheral uh, 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 first order synapse. So we have these things called spinal cord glial cells. What are they? Well, spinal cord glial cells are basically, we used to think of glial cells as being inert structure of the spine. Those of you who went to school when I did, right? You know, that was like the white matter that didn't do much. Well, we now know that glial cells actually play a role, and a very big role when it comes to pain. I view spinal cord glial cells as the roving reporters of the nervous system. Think about anything that happens. What's the first thing we do? We send a reporter out to the site to give us a direct beeline of information back about what's going on. It's like an alternate pathway back to what's, what we need to know. So in the, the, the moment of pain, basically, spinal cord glial cells either become activated or migrate to where they need to be and give you a whole new pathway to get the signal back to the brain. Another little complication. How about these things called GABAergic inhibitory interneurons? What are they? Well, I kind of gave it away with the title, right? They inhibit something. The question is, what do they inhibit? Well, let's talk about that for a second, and you're gonna love my analogy for this one. I view GABAergic inhibitory interneurons as the Pac-Man of the nervous system. You guys remember the game Pac-Man? You have these funny-looking smiley faces that would gobble something up? Well, if you want to inhibit the this, this signal going through, what's a good thing to gobble up? Glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter that has to bind that NMDA receptor to allow for the signal to jump from the peripheral nerve to the spinal nerve. Got that? So GABAergic inhibitory interneurons, the Pac-Man of the nervous system, and then to show you how things go, spinal cord glial cells metabolize GABA and the whole process starts again. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Remember I gave you guys a, a cliffhanger for fibromyalgia? Okay, when it comes to fibromyalgia and myofascial pain, I am the first person to tell you that the key to success for dealing with a fibromyalgia myofascial pain patient is you have to figure out what's causing their fibromyalgia myofascial pain. Is there a potential neurologic explanation? Yes. But is there a potential uh, hormone, vitamin, electrolyte deficiency? Yes. Can it be a regional pain syndrome that somebody overlooked because they never put a hand on a patient? Absolutely. So we take a step backwards and we want to know what we think is causing the pain 
we don't just label it myofascial pain here, try this. We want to know why, because it's a very highly patient-centered approach. So, but what happens when A delta and C fibers come in and synapse in the dorsal horn, they synapse in a certain receptor field? Well, following an injury, it's possible that you can get a reorganization of that receptor field so that A beta fibers, which also synapse in that same field but have a different receptor site, if you will, now are being triggered by those same nerve fibers that are being fired by A delta and C fibers. So, in a sense, it's a crosstalk or a bleed over. G. That is a potential neuropathic explanation for certain forms of fibromyalgia. So if we had a patient that we were considering like a neuropathic pain medication for, would that be the patient this one might respond to? Yeah, possibly. But would that patient be expected to respond if they had a hormone deficiency to that antiepileptic or something? Probably not. This crosstalk phenomenon can occur in the peripheral nerves as well, because if you injure or irritate a peripheral nerve, you're going to get the same type of problem where that causes an issue, right? So from the standpoint of central sensitization, if we sum up what we got so far, we can have changes that affect this glutamate NMDA receptor activity. You know, you can sort of modulate the whole thing by looking at the ratio of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We have the descending inhibitory pathway that comes down and saying, go, no, go. We've added in activation migration of the glial cells, and we haven't even talked about what? The final stage yet. The final stage is perception. This is where all the magic happens. So remember when we were all in school, those of you who are older, the only thing that we learned about the sensory nervous system was the homunculus. Remember the primary sensory cortex with the funny-looking guy in the brain with the big head and the big hands? But thanks to functional imaging studies, we now know that this rich experience called pain involves a whole bunch of other parts of the brain. And that includes the prefrontal cortex for motor planning, the anterior cingular cortex for the context of situation of pain, the insular cortex, pain judged to the degree of where it's imagined, the amygdala, the emotional aspect, the hippocampus is sort of that pain imprinting memory side of the equation. And truly, I think there's going to be even more. Because when you combine things like um, diffuser tensor imaging studies with functional MRI. Now you're getting to see the radiation and functional of nerve, nerve pathways, neurons, individual neurons firing in the brain. So I think this is going to change even more, and we're going to find out that it's even more complex than this. So we'll see what technology has to offer. So with that, I think we got through most of where I needed to be by this time, which is pretty good. So what I wanted to do is review some of the different medication classes we have for treating this rich experience that we call pain. And what I've done on this slide, and I'll let you look at it on your own because I want to get to the actual nit and gritty before we run out of time, is I've broken out the different medication classes and what part of the pathway they'll have an effect in. And I did the same thing on this slide, which is the same information, just put it in a slightly different manner. But what I want to do is get to the content. So we'll do that really quick, and I'll leave that to you. So the first thing I did want to mention is when we look at this concept of treating pain, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, really likely, the only thing we had was the World Health Organization guideline for treating chronic cancer pain. Remember that? Is that guideline accurate today? Well, sort of yes and sort of no. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The good part of what that did is it described the stepwise manner in which we start with A. If that doesn't work, we go up to step B. And if that doesn't work, we try step C, et cetera. The big problem with that guideline was the order of the steps. Because now, with the, thanks to the issue we have with opioids, it's become a little bit more controversial. So the concept is the same. It's just the steps are in a different order. So the one that I like these days is the VA DOD step care model for all of you in the VA and DOD. And for all of you that are not, pay attention to this, because it's really slick. 
It's similar concept with respect to the stepwise treatment of pain, but what's the whole step one? Look what it's called. Self-care. When the patient has skin in the game, guess what happens with respect to their outcomes? You're more likely to get a better one. So I really, truly hope that people will adopt more of a pathway like this, because for me, I relish in the, the idea that we can educate patients and give them better outcomes, and I, and I live by that. You know, I don't just preach it, I practice it. So what I want to do now is run through some of the different highlights relative to some of these basic medication classes, just to tell you a quick highlights, because you have plenty of opportunity to get all the details here at Pain Week. So the first one is acetaminophen. What do we know about acetaminophen that's extremely important? It's hepatotoxic, potentially, right? Do you know how many patients will tell you that, well, I'm not taking acetaminophen, but I'm taking this stuff? Well, did you know that that contains acetaminophen? But the problem is, because it's over the counter, if one is good, two is better, 25 must be great. Well, that's a perceived problem that could be an issue because we know that that can cause a problem. We've seen some interesting patient complexities with that. And you have to be careful about like the 15 or 20 medications that are over the counter that have acetaminophen. And there are another probably dozen medications that are by prescription that have acetaminophen. So people don't necessarily know what they're taking. But the big thing here that you need to know is it has a central action basically on prostaglandin activity, but it has no peripheral acting component at all. Well, that's interesting because I kind of like the art of war idea. So if the problem started in the back of the room right there, I think our first line defense should be where? The back of the room. Because if you wait for the problem to get up here, you're losing your options with respect to treating the patient. So that brings to mind something like the general classification of NSAIDs. And why NSAIDs work in general is because they have peripheral and central acting activity with respect to cyclooxygenase and prostaglandins. So to me, there's a better effect. How many remember, uh, was it rifocoxid? Remember that one? How many of you used to use that in practice before it was pulled from the market? How many loved it because it worked like a charm? How many wished it would come back? <laughs> exactly. So um, there's, there's a... What's interesting here is, again, both central and peripheral effects. So that might be a better bang for the buck than acetaminophen. There's a new classification coming to this that might be out there, too, called lipoxins. Lipoxins are a substance that's basically triggered to elicit the signal healing effect. So that might be a whole new way of treating pain that we, becomes available to us in the future. We'll see how things go. How about opioids? It used to be the magic bullet, but now what do we have to discuss when we think of opioids? We have to talk about opioid-induced respiratory depression, dependence, diversion, you, the whole multitude of things. Well, you know, where most of the baggage comes from in dealing with opioids is not how it affects pain, it's how it affects everything else on the behavioral side of the equation. What part of the pain pathway, now that we just did this, so it's the limbic side that creates all of our problems, but what part of the pain pathway we just talked about is affected by opioids? Bless you. The entire pathway, isn't it? Remember those mu opioid receptors everywhere? Well, there's something else we don't talk about, too. We've talked about that descending inhibitory pathway that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based. Do you know that working through GABA, the opioid has an effect on turning some neurons that are on off and some that are off on, and it's higher up in that cascade of that process involving the descending inhibitory pathways that are norepinephrine and serotonin-based? Well, that's an interesting concept here because that means, well, wait a second. If you apply the concept of rational polypharmacy, wouldn't it make sense to get away with maybe using a lower dose of, let's say, an NSRI in conjunction with an opioid? Because maybe the combined effect of the two together might have an effect greater than either would have been on their own. 
And what do we notice when we use lower doses of medications? Lower side effects, lower complexities, lower issues, right? Do we do that every day in practice? Absolutely. What does the research show for that? The drug studies that gave you the approval for that medication often are single drug studies, aren't they? They don't necessarily reflect how we use the medication in clinical practice. We have to start speaking louder and asking for things that are more clinically relevant. So opioids basically have an effect on the entire pathway, including the descending inhibitory pathways. How about, anti, uh, how about tricyclic antidepressants? Well, one of the big problems with tricyclic antidepressants is you have a, a tolerability issue, and many of them are cardio, like all of them are potentially cardiotoxic, right? Some more so than others. But what's unique and you need to know about tricyclic antidepressants is we typically look at these from the standpoint of comorbidities. If the patient has a comorbidity that would warrant using a TCA, I'm all for it. But the key is the comorbidity, because otherwise we have some better choices. And what you have to remember about TCAs is they have two pathways by which they're helpful with respect to pain that are independent of the antidepressant function, which is they have a direct action on blocking sodium channel activity, which is firing the neuron, but they also have an effect on the descending inhibitory pathway that comes down that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based. Make sense? So TCAs work in two ways. How about SSRIs? There's somebody here that used to go to another pain meeting. I remember them from way back in the day, and I know they were at the same meeting that I was. We all came back from this meeting. Everyone was saying you need to throw your patients on SSRIs for pain. Did that work? No, what we quickly found out is that it didn't seem to have an effect because we were looking at the serotonin side of the equation only. So we had no effect with respect to modulating the patient's pain, but the patients might have felt better about being in pain. So then we came up, the reason serotonin receptors were in all sorts of parts of the nervous system, which is why we really didn't see much of an effect. But what about SNRIs? SNRIs are like the, the new sort of favorite child because they're, they seem to be a first-line action now for us because they have less or a better tolerability, if you will, less drug-to-drug -drug interactions and less concerns we have with respect to pain, and they're affecting this descending inhibitory pathway that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based. What was the first, and there are some more than this, obviously, but what was the first SNRI in the market? Venlafaxine, right? Does that have a pain indication? No, but it's noradrenergic at higher doses, serotonergic at lower doses, so that's a possibility. Then deluxetine hit, which is more equally balanced, and minlacepran was more favoring the norepinephrine side of the equation. But these have an effect on that descending inhibitory pathway coming down saying go or no go. How about the mainstays for neuropathic pain? Antiepileptics. What are the two most common ones that we see? Gabapentin and pregabalin? Well, you know, the, what's the problem or the thing we have to remember about, about gabapentin? Its dosing is quasi-intuitive, right? You increase the dosage, bioavailability goes down. So the first solution to that was pregabalin. It's got six times the affinity. What happens when you have six times the affinity with respect to potential side effects? <laughs> you have the same problem with tolerability. So now they have a new variation to the theme where they like pegulated a protein or a molecule onto the gabapentin so that it can be absorbed further on in the digestive system so that what happens is you get a higher bioavailability. Well, that's pretty slick because maybe we can get away with a lower dose off-label up actually, right? But that might be an effective consideration. So the mechanism of action with respect to the antiepileptics and all the medications in this class are slightly different is you're affecting this kind of glutamate NMDA relationship somehow. And for um, gabapentin and pregabalin, they're binding the alpha-2 subunit of the voltage-gated calcium channels, which affect neurotransmitter release. So basically for the, the antiepileptics, it's all about this 
first-order synapses, glutamate and NBA relationship. How about topical medications? Well, we all know about the first one because it has an indication for post-traumatic neuralgia, right? How often do you see a patient come in with any kind of peripheral pain and they have um, lidocaine patches cut up like Band-Aids stuck every place it hurts? Well, it's a peripheral anesthetic. It's a sodium channel blocker. That works. I'm happy with that. How about diclofenic? Well, you know, when you use a topical diclofenic and now it comes in a cream, a liquid, a gel, a patch, there's not a place on the body you can't figure out where to put diclofenic. Well, if that's where the pathology is starting, go for it. Obviously, it's off-label because diclofenic is only indicated here for osteoarthritis of the knee. Well, guess what? It's indicated for all sorts of stuff in the rest of the world, and the over-the-counter stuff is twice the strength as the stuff we get here, over-the-counter. And we used to compound things like that and really do very well with it. So I highly recommend looking at topical diclofenic. How about capsaicin? Well, capsaicin can block the TRIP-V1 receptor, which is Trignal's pain, but it also pulls down substance P, which is, in a, which is basically an excitatory neurotransmitter. Except the problem with the capsaicin patch when it came out is the tolerability of having the patch applied. Sometimes, remember, it was worse than the condition the patient was being treated for. So those patients never came back. It was kind of funny. So lastly, before we break up for the day, I want to talk about muscle relaxants. And I want to do this only because it's very important. And like I got Dr. Argoff with this yesterday because he asked a question. Remember, his questions are always a little bit misleading. Muscle relaxants are not a class of medications by themselves, except to say that there are all sorts of medications in this class that come from other medication, other medication classes. Okay? So cyclobenzaprine is a TCA. Uh, orphenadrine is a benzo. And what do we know about benzos and opioids these days? Not such a good idea. So the, but I see patients prescribing a muscle relaxant like ophenadrine, not realizing it's a benzo. And cyclobenzaprine is probably one of the most commonly prescribed muscle relaxants, would it be not? Well, it's also one of the highest risks for cardiac problems. So do you want to give that patient who has a, a, a comorbidity cardiac problem cyclobenzaprine? Not really. So there's a, Dr. Argoff has like a 10-minute video on Medscape I highly recommend everybody look at. It's on muscle relaxants. And they'll talk about all the different muscle relaxants that are available and what their origins are. And I will virtually guarantee that there will be two muscle relaxants that catch your attention that you might look at as to be your primarily first choices when it comes to treating our pain patients. Okay, I can cheat and tell you like tizanidine and baclofen. But watch the video. I think you'll find it very useful. So with that, I'm going to close by telling you that this was an actual case. It was a 50-year-old uh, nurse, as a matter of fact, who got injured pulling a patient from a stretcher to a bed and ended up with neck, arm, and shoulder pain. If you look at the medications she was on, it was multiple medications from different classes, multiple medications from the same class, and the ones with the overlapping actions from both, and in higher doses. When she called on the phone to schedule an appointment, she was high as a kite. When she came in, she was so lethargic, I thought I was going to have to call a rescue squad. That's a red flag for a problem. So what I told this patient was, look, I think your life is extremely more important, so you got to get rid of these medications. She had three different physicians writing these meds for three different problems, and nobody was talking to each other. So I said, look, if you get, if you get the medication just who addressed, I'll help your neck, arm, and shoulder pain. So six weeks later, she comes back in, she has no neck, arm, and shoulder pain, and she's off most of the medications except for one or two. So the moral of the story is, 
if, who says that if you can modulate pain pathways that you can't over-modulate it and over-treat it and maintain the patient's pain? So if I had to give you a really good final takeaway, sometimes all you need to take a step back, especially when the patient's been treated for a long time, start from scratch. Get them off everything and then start building things back because there is nothing to state that this wasn't over-treated and then helping the condition maintain. And I can give you dozens and dozens and dozens of examples. We had a patient last year who was on eight anti-anxiolytics, three anti-epileptics, two benzos, and an opioid. I kid you not. Well, and she was being treated for chronic back pain, anxiety, and depression for a year. Well, the back pain was a simple fix. I think we saw her once, never had to treat it again. Getting her off the meds was the harder problem, and that was helping basically create her problem going forward and maintain it. So with that, I apologize for going over. However, you guys seemed like you were interested because very few people left the room, so I think that's a good start. <laughs> Welcome to Pain Week. I hope you enjoyed the information. Um, if you want to have some fun this afternoon, 